Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Ellie Jacobs, and with me as always is Frank Spring, a man who can prove time moves slower south of the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge. It is entirely true, and uh, you could get lost for potentially an entire, uh, entire, not only a lifetime, but millennia, and indeed all of space and time down there if you're not careful. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank our listeners for, uh, for comments, for feedback, uh, for the for again, you know, for your effusive praise, for your hate missives, uh, we you know we we thrive on it all. So, uh, thank you all. We urge you to subscribe. If you are listening to this on an iOS device, please rate us on iTunes, and you can follow us as always on uh, Twitter at at taking ship, and that's ship with a P, as in peripatetic. Yes, and so. Uh, friends, this week, we will not spend a lot of time on this, but uh, there's no point in talking about public affairs, politics, or anything else this week uh, without uh, talking about guns. Uh, we have, on We at Taking Ship, have made our view on uh, on uh, gun control. Uh, we are for it. Extremely clear in the past, uh, in some previous incidents, when something else awful happened. Now, here we are again. We are not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I will say, uh, there are a couple of things that are worth bringing up at this moment. This feels like a little bit of a different moment in the debate. Uh, traditionally, we have traditionally these awful events like what happened in Florida were are followed by a rote process of empty of you know of empty pieties uh, and inaction that is just like people as is assumed with the regularity of the stations of the cross. But I actually am beginning to think this one's a little bit different since. 2012, there has been a, a conception on the left, and I can see why, and I, I shared it myself for a long time, that when we didn't do anything after Sandy Hook, we're never going to do anything. But that was so awful that that if you don't take action after Sandy Hook, that we are never going to see a gun control agenda come together in this country in any meaningful way, at least not within the foreseeable future. I am beginning to suspect, and 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 I, I, you know, this is something where I could very well be wrong. I am beginning to suspect that we are seeing the shift of the Overton window here. And of course, the Overton window, for those who may not be familiar, is a rough term for the period of time in which an idea can be goes from being impossible to being possible. Uh, and then the idea is the Overton window; the, the window can pass. So a new idea becomes possible, and either it occurs or it doesn't. And the window closes. That's basically what the window means. I think the window on meaningful gun control may be opening again, and I, and and there are all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, this particular incident has its own the uh, the the Florida school shooting has its own characteristics. Um, that that have made it that have given it, I think, a little more cut through and make it a little more immediate. And some of it is the footage from inside, which is, r- remains truly horrifying, uh, and it, and is hard to get away. It's hard to get away from, and, and we shouldn't get away from it. Uh, some of it is where it took place. Some of it is there's there's all sorts of details for why this particular atrocity has gotten may get more cut may get more political cut through. The students themselves as advocates uh, is a is a pretty big change uh, and and one that I think maybe that may drive this a little may drive this farther. Uh, there is and and we'll see if that's sustain. That's going to be the big variable to watch on this. But I guess my point here is this. I think the window is closing not because a candidate can now a federal candidate could run on gun control. We're, that is not quite we're not quite there yet. But there has always been an assumption in many constituencies around the country, many districts, that being for 
an assault rifle ban saying, yes, I'm for an assault rifle ban. Yes, I'm for this type of gun control or that type of gun control in certain constituencies was a, was just something you couldn't possibly say. Um, that that really taking a strong and firm position and being being aggressively about gun control, making that an issue that you care a lot about, was was something you just couldn't say if you wanted to win. I think that that is a line that can. I think that that is beginning to shift because ideas, things don't go from being issues don't go from being campaign losers to campaign winners overnight. What happens is they go from being campaign losers. If you say that, you will lose. And I'm not sure how true that ever actually was about guns. That's a that, that's a longer conversation. Uh, but an issue goes from being a campaign loser to a campaign not loser. It doesn't become a campaign winner overnight. It goes from being a campaign loser to a campaign not loser. Uh, and and I think that we may be beginning to see this, particularly with particularly with AR-15s and, and assault rifles. I think we may begin to see a movement toward. Uh, the idea that, yeah, I mean, you can be openly, publicly, and, and unabashedly for their control, uh, potentially even for something as strong as a ban on their manufacturing sale. And it's not, it will certainly bring the NRA back down on you, but the question for them is how much, how much mileage by cause and by methodology does the NRA have left in it? The answer is a lot, but they may be on the, they may be on the, on the, the diminishing side of their returns on this. So I think we may see the Overton window open, and the Overton window again doesn't doesn't it doesn't open when an issue goes from being a loser to a winner. It goes from being a loser to a neutral to a non-loser, and I think that may be happening now. I certainly hope so. That'd be great. I, I think that's that that's the key for it to shift from loser to non-loser, um, particularly in Republican politics, where I mean, they've all had to bend the knee for the NRA for upwards of the last two decades for sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a really sharp point when Republican candidates, especially in primaries are able to say, you know what, actually, and, and no one's going to like give the middle finger to the NRA. Uh, no Republicans going to give the middle finger to the NRA and in, in the way that I think a lot of us would like for them to, but when you get Republicans who are in a position to, and this is happening right now with donors and we'll see how many of them are able to maintain this. But if the idea is what we as donors are looking for, and and have and potentially voters as well, but like if what we as donors are looking for are candidates who will who will not, as you say, genuflect, bend the knee. They don't necessarily have to say fuck you to the NRA, but they do need to be. But but they are, need to be able to take a principled position and a real position on something like AR-15s, like the lowest hanging fruit, you know, and and be able to carry that off. That's when we'll know the Overton window is well and truly open. Right, and I don't. I'm I'm maybe a little more pessimistic or maybe a little more cynical just given the last week, but uh, I would hope that there is some chance of it shifting a little bit. Uh, I think the reemergence of someone like Mitt Romney, who I would say probably pretty reluctantly embraced the NRA when he was the uh, when he was the nominee in 2012, his reappearance on the national scene, particularly at this time, um, and particularly out of a state like Utah. He could be a very powerful voice on this on the national scene, and it would be good if he if he would be. And maybe yeah. mit, maybe mit five will have a spine. Yeah, we we you know I mean that's that yes, your uh, that's a that is a that is a very interesting possibility. One that is there is a non-zero chance of that happening, uh, but in this case, I think. But in the case of Mitt Romney actually standing for something worth a damn, I think this is one of those places where your 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 tendency toward let, let's let, let's say a little more realism than I sometimes indulge in maybe the, the maybe the prevailing uh, the prevailing view here. But we live in hope, right? And we live in hope and. You know, again, we're not, Frank and I are not advocating for the banning of all weapons and, you know, the, the 
taking them all back the way they did in Australia, however wonderful it seemed to have worked in Australia, it's not realistic here. Um, the people who are going to fight the hardest to keep their guns are, you know, some of the militias or, or, or that type who are bunkered down and have you know, weaponry to, for 600 when they have a family of six. That guy doesn't really scare me that much because he's not going to bother me, you know, 90% of 95 or more percent of the time unless I do something to piss him off. And I'm not going to try to do something to piss him off. We are not advocating for arming yourself for arming yourself to the tune of 600 people. And incidentally, nor are we saying that these people are completely harmless. But there is a but there is a but there is a difference in intent here. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. Right. So we're talking about gun control, and you know I keep coming back and back. And I know President Obama made this point at at one point when he was pressed on uh, somebody. Somebody in the audience was pushing him on that he wanted to ban guns. It's a dangerous weapon. You shouldn't just be able to get one. Uh, the the example that the president that then the president made and and I've made repeatedly in conversations is we all had to take a or most of us had to take a written test and a and a practical test when before we got our driver's license because at some point somebody determined that cars are dangerous and therefore you shouldn't just be able to drive one without somebody giving you an up you know looking you up and down and saying okay you seem to have the requisite skills and responsibility to handle this dangerous object. Uh, that doesn't seem like too much to ask. No, it doesn't. And yet, um, and yet. We, we may be seeing the beginning of, of something like, and again, we're talking about the lowest hanging fruit here. So let's, let's hope we can go pick it. And, and to that point, there is a fair amount of money by progressive standards out there for, uh, for this kind of advocacy, uh, for, for advocacy on gun control. Uh, nothing like NRA money, but, but a fair amount of money for advocacy that's going to keep flowing. That's really good. We are all for that. Ellie has an interesting thought on how some of that money could be used in a different way that has, I think, some interesting potential. Right. You know, the, for, for the time being, the money is used to uh, advocate for candidates that uh, agree with uh, some of the things that, for instance, every town or Mom, Moms for Gun Control uh, support. But just Mike Bloomberg alone has you know, upwards of $40 billion sitting around. All these gun manufacturers uh, are for-profit companies. And I'm not talking, you know, the McDonnell Douglases. That doesn't exist anymore, does it? The Raytheons or the Lockheed Martins or the Boeings, you know, the ma major weapons manufacturers. I'm talking, you know, Colt and Smith and & Wesson and Remington, which is incidentally recently filed for bankruptcy. Uh, Cerberus, a big private equity fund, Red, um, has owned or currently owns several gun manufacturers at various different points. Uh, these are all for-profit companies, meaning they could be bought, and then regulated from the manufacturer's side, uh, which could change the, all the math completely. It's an interesting thought, and it's one that I have a lot. It's one that I have a lot of time for, in the sense that it is a kind of outside the box. Like rather than playing this out in the court of public opinion, which again I'm arguing may be changing and maybe a more it may be more effective uh, and, and friendly environment than it has been for the last decade or two, or that as progressives, we have assumed it was for the last decade or two. Uh, and, and taking this an entirely different route, it would take, it would take a Bloomberg or someone like that with that amount of money to spare, but it's a doable proposition potentially. Uh, and certainly one that is uh, certainly one that's, that, that has, it, it's just crazy enough to work. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that they buy them and then shut them down. Um, I'm suggesting that but they were not, not, I'm not, not suggesting right. that I'm not, not suggesting that, but I'm recognizing that you're not just going to throw $50 billion away. Uh, you can, you can run these companies much more, uh, rationally and much in a much more responsible way and still make a lot of money. 
Yeah, probably what, what what we are talking about is a return to making, you know, is the return to making hunting weapons. And and essentially all of the stuff that was the province of the NRA. For those who don't know, the NRA used to be a fairly mainstream-ish. I mean, they've always, I mean, it's the National Rifle Association. They've always been more gunnish than most people. But there was a, for much of their lifetime, they were you know, actually not that far outside the mainstream in terms of what kind of weapons people should be allowed to own, who should be able, allowed to have them. They're kind of a gun safety organization. They're like a sportsman's club, but they had this big ranch in New Mexico where like kids could go and learn gun safety and learn how to shoot. Like it wasn't that radical stuff. And then, in the, and then when they had their national convention in 1968, they were taken over by uh, a fairly radical branch of the NRA. The social agenda behind the agenda, legislative and social agenda behind it changed. For those of you who are noticing that this happened in the height of the civil rights movement, uh, you are not you are you are what you are seeing is I think not a coincidence, uh, and and they became what we know them today. Uh, so yeah, the idea that we could the idea that uh, if you could pull money or have a single donor whose idea was we are going to return from the manufacturers and the way guns are made and sold in this country to the kind of pre NRA version of it where they're primarily hunting weapons. And sporting weapons, yeah, that seems like that. That seems like one uh, and one very devious and very charming approach to this. Yeah. Um, all right. So, in in sum, the Overton window has hopefully changed, and uh, let's get a pool of about a hundred billion dollars together and buy some buy some gun manufacturers. Uh, with that, let's move to our next topic. As we try to keep this episode a little bit short, shorter, I guess is is is, is the proper modifier. And let's talk about uh, Robert Mueller and the big indictment that came down on Friday, uh, the indictment of 13 Russians and three organizations for their interference in our election and the, um, uh, I would say, the declassification of a tremendous amount of information that really showed step by step what they did and how they did it and where they did it. Uh, And there's clearly some group of... um, campaign officials that were not named. Uh, I assume Mueller and his team know who they are um, just based on the fact that there were emails back and forth uh, in Texas and Florida who are probably not sleeping so well um, since Friday. Uh, But the things to take from this is this was sort of Mueller's big throwdown. um, Fuck you, Mr. President. The Russians did this. Stop with this nonsense that that the Russians didn't do it. It was a 400 pound kid in, in New Jersey. That's the thing. That's the first thing. Well, we, first of all, we don't, just because he wasn't indicted, we don't know that it wasn't a 400 pound right. person, right? Right. Or there is some 400 pound person in his mother's basement who is just the most relieved guy ever in the history of the world right now. I know. I know they'll never catch me. They'll never take me alive. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Something oh, like boy. that. That's our 400 pound person. That is our 400 pound person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the other big thing that we, that, that, was a good takeaway from this was also the evidentiary uh, presentation of the fact that the Russians decided the best way to damage the United States of America was to elect Donald Trump president. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, And, and is a, and, and frankly, like, you know, you can't argue. You Good can't job. argue with it. Nothing. I mean, nothing succeeds like excess. Not only did they help elect him, but they, Wow. Not only was he elected, but I think it's fair to say he was extremely elected, not numerically, but but just in the kind of broader sort of moral sense of the energy of the country. Like this guy is extremely president of the United States. Right. He is as much, if not more president of the United States than anyone has ever been before in the sense of like penetration of public consciousness. Yeah. Well, he said he'd be more. They overcooked their goose. 
He said he'd be the most presidential president ever, didn't he? I'm, I, I don't, let's say he did. I am a hundred percent. If he had, if he didn't say that, he certainly meant to. Yeah. So there's a difference between the Russians electing Donald Trump because they have something hanging over his head and therefore that he's going to do their bidding. That's concept number one, which I think people get pretty hot and bothered over. That suggests the collusion. um, That's the collusion or, you know, coordination aspect where the Russians blackmailed Trump into doing what they wanted. And the idea, and that, that incidentally is very much on the table as a right. possibility, right? Like the, the, the general theory behind that is the steel the, dossier, which points out that yeah. there's all kinds of safety stuff in, in Trump's past, particularly with Russia. The Russians knew about it. They held, they were going to hold it over Trump's head. Therefore Trump, you know, they, Paul Manafort changed the platform at the Republican convention and Trump hasn't implemented the sanctions that were passed, you know, Exactly. The idea is they've and the Congress or something like that. The idea is that they've got money laundering on the Trump organization and probably some fringe sexual sexual stuff on Trump himself. Like that's that's yeah. the that's the theory behind. Like that's the the theory is that's what they've got on him, and then and they're blackmailing him. That's one theory. Right. So then there so are that, other that that that's lane number one, and these are not mutually exclusive lanes, but that's lane number one, and that's the one that Trump seems to be kicking back and forth about most. The other one is just the Russians wanted to fuck with us and they wanted to prevent Hillary Clinton from winning. And the only option was to elect Donald Trump president, which is essentially what uh, the chiefs of intelligence and James Comey said at an open intelligence hearing at some point last fall. It would make sense. It's been messing with other democracies, messing with democracies, particularly democracies they see as strategic, either regional strategic challenges or in our case, a global strategic uh, opponent. Uh, that's that like this is not this is not the first time they have done that. It's what you do. It's, it's what I mean, they, yeah. It's, it's what they do certainly. Yeah. It, it's it's you're Russian. That's what you do. Like that's yeah. it's part of the. They, I mean, it's a playbook they've had for a long time. And in terms of return on investment, like the amount that you spend in in energy and fine and you know and financial output, uh, the amount the, the amount that you would spend on something like this on undermining a democracy in this way, the return you can get for it is absolutely staggering. I mean, it is, it is honestly like if your hope is to either in, in both the long and the short term, so chaos in a potential opponent, maybe move that opponent towards some outcomes that you really want. But what you just want is a less effective player to oppose your agenda. Uh, I mean, you know, let, let me recommend nothing more highly than, uh, the, than the Russian FSB playbook for undermining democracies. It's, it's not, it's, usually they do it on a much smaller scale. It tends to be their regional, their regional democracies that they victimize. But I'm telling you, man, like there's, you know, this, this one is, it's, it, this, this is good money. It's the smart money play. Right. If you look at uh, after 2008, um, the uh, Blue State Digital and then Bully Pulpit rolled out of the Obama's cam- Obama campaign for their success uh, running social media campaigns during 2008. You know, if Russia was a different country, Fuzzy Bear and Tiny Giraffe or whatever the hell the two groups are called, um, there could be a lot of money to be made if they wanted to go professional. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that, this is exactly it. There's a, there's a market out there for this kind of, uh, this kind of clandestine, uh, amoral bullshit. And uh, we strongly encourage these people to, uh, to you know, just to, to set up shop here in D.C. Uh, you know, give us an address, ideally put up a nice website with some names. And, uh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do with them. Right. And, and, you know, the, there's really just a couple big questions that I think are, are still hanging out there. Uh, the first is, where's Congress through all of this? I mean, as, as Frank and I repeatedly say, uh, one of the core concepts of Dumbest Timeline America is that tax cuts and deregulation are more important than morality and the future of the country. And they continue to prove that by not doing anything, uh, really. 
To this, we would add the the. I think we we that this is broadly right. To this, I think we we should add the approval of uh, of extremely uh, let's call them federalist judges. Now, uh, that's the third element of this that we kind of we kind of right. slept on a little bit. But like that's that's the other like those are the three things they really want to do. The first two are really important. The third one, I think that actually is one of the things that has really it'll be the most uh, lasting. It'll be the most lasting, and it's the thing that has kept Republicans on side even through the worst times is the fact that they're they're approving very far right judges, federal judges at a at a shocking rate. Like they're yeah. bringing them in by the job lot. Yeah, yeah. Like what I would like is a is a is a, is a gross unit, one hundred and forty four at a time of like of of, yeah. of federalist society endorsed judges. Uh, and the other big question is, uh, we know the Russians attempted to hack into actual voting systems. Um, you know, the question that was posited to me by somebody much smarter than I and much more experienced in the world of espionage and politics uh, was, what if they did and they were successful and the government knows about it? Would they actually tell us? Because that, that would just so absurd chaos. Oh, yeah. And that's, and again, that sowing of chaos, that creating of uncertainty and distrust in institutions and in each other is very much, that's very much the goal of this. There is the very real possibility. And well, I mean, there is, there is, I mean, clearly in the case of Trump, the Mueller indictment makes the case uh, that Russia had a candidate in mind. They wanted a candidate to win. So it's very possible that they might have gotten into a voting system with the idea of changing votes to have a specific candidate win. But for the most part, these types of activities from, from Russia are about, reducing faith in the act of democracy itself and and what as you go through some of these scenarios that that have happened or might happen what we begin to what you know what is uncovered is just how little we have prepared for uh for what happens if you know say the 2018 election god forbid something really weird happens and then russia comes through and said oh yeah we are or is found or some some other third party reactor is, is found to have messed with the vote totals, not particularly for one party or candidate, but just to screw up democracy itself. We have no protocols right now for how to handle a, an election that has been just scotched beyond recall uh, and is just is a hopeless garbled mess. And that's a real, like, the reaction to that could be extremely frightening and extremely authoritarian in a way that is, and in a way that would suit Russia down to the ground and would be really awful for American democracy. Right. Yeah, that's exactly true. Um, I think we've probably talked about Mueller enough. Let's, let's move on to our third and final topic um, for, yes. for, for the day. All is not uh, darkness. All is not uh, all, you know, even, even in dumbest timeline America, uh, we come together to celebrate uh, and to admire uh, great accomplishments. And I am, of course, uh, referring to the Olympics. They are the Winter Olympics are on. Uh, they are often a lot of fun. Uh, cool, uh, extremely interesting people and extremely impressive people have done some really awesome things, and that is always a cause for celebration. But Ellie has doubts. Ellie has critiques, and in particular about one 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 particular type of sport and how it is assessed. Well, it's not just one sport. It's several yeah. sports. I basically have a general problem with sports that are judged or scored. Uh, this is a problem I have with the summer games as well. This is a problem I have in the, in the winter games. Uh, I'm not trying as, to... As opposed to like a sport that's a set, like you either have, if you have the fastest time, you win. If the you fastest run, time you win, who scores more right. points, who hits more you know, targets, you know, yeah. objective things. You, you, uh, fell, you fell face first down the hill fastest. <laughs> like that's yeah. pretty 
Yeah, that, that, that's based. That's what I'm. That's I've won that one several times, not in any kind of organized way, but just as a you know. In when it happens, it happens. You just yeah. declare yourself a victor. That's exactly, that's exactly right. I stand here and give myself a a good you know award myself a gold medal and a bloody nose. But a perfect example of that is skeleton, which is uh, it's a sport I desperately would like to try. I think, and then probably stand up at the top of the thing and piss my pants and not even contemplate it. Skeleton is. Um, luge on the other side so it's uh, on your stomach face first uh, at 80 miles an hour down down the luge and jerry seinfeld had this great bit about luge where it's the only sport in the world where you could take anybody on the street and put them on and it would be the exact same reaction as the professional just a guy screaming the whole way down you got to think skeleton is probably the same way but you know skeleton last night the uh, a british woman won and i firmly believe any olympic sport that the brits are dominating is not a true sport Unless it involves some kind of dressage horse, but again, that's a judged. That's a judge. That's, that's a judged, a judged one. Thing. No, that's, that's fair. That's so fair. I'm talking about. We're on to you, you limeys. I'm talking about you know uh, um, the diving competitions in the summer, uh, the the swimming, the synchronized swimming, the, and particularly the gymnastics, where there's plenty of proof that there has been judges that have been paid off in the past. Uh, and then in the winter games where they basically just make up sports so that they have enough sports to compare it to um, the, the, the summer games where you have swimming and running and other sorts of things. And now we have short track and long track. There's all these different sports where there's actually winners and losers. But the judge sports are just infuriating to watch. And if you're going to do it, if you're going to do the judge sports, and I don't want to take away from the athletes themselves. It is yeah, remarkably astonishing what they're doing. I'm just saying that I have a problem with how a winner is declared. Perhaps if they all did the exact same moves in the exact same order, and you could compare one to the other and exact, you know, one across the board to one another. NBC had this really cool thing that they were showing on, a, on the downhill the other day. They basically superimposed the previous skier onto the screen so you could see the difference in where the two skiers were. Let's do that with all the different uh, skaters. Let's see exactly what they did at each point through the whole thing. And then you can score something that might be apples to apples. But right now you're comparing like apples to pine nuts or something. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason necessarily for what this guy wasn't smiling the right way or, or in the slope, the slope style, whatever they invented this year for another sport for people to have. And again, not to take anything away from these people and the hard work they make and the training that they go through, but you got to be pretty disappointed. You know, if you're pretty disappointed when you, you know, lose the, 100 meter dash or 100 meter dash by, you know, 0.8 of a second. How much, how much more annoyed are you when you get scored? You know, you lose five points from the scoring because, you know, your shoelace got untied and the judge didn't, the judge from Romania didn't like that at the time. I'm just saying. Yeah. There's a way to do this and a way not to do this. Friends, you've heard it here. Ellie Jacobs takes a strong stand against uh, spontaneity and ambiguity in sport. So with that, um, Frank, thank you for joining me today. Uh, listeners, thank, thank you for you, joining Eric. us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship. And that's ship with a P as in picture. You can also follow Frank at, at Frank Spring and me at, 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 at Ellie Jacobs. And with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we are headed to Poland, uh, where last month, uh, what can only be the world's absolute toughest, hardest cow, the Ray Winston of cattle, if you will, uh, refused to board uh, the truck to the slaughterhouse. Uh, it broke a wrangler's arm, crashed through a metal fence, and dove into a nearby lake. 
uh, where it swam to an island and has been ever since, since either driving off or evading anyone who's tried to capture it. Yes, this cow essentially broke free, uh, running over anyone or anything in its path and is now living on an island. Uh, the local consensus is, consensus is that the cow uh, will be allowed to uh, live out its life. They tried to get it back, they couldn't. Uh, the opinion is this cow is going to live out its natural life either by being transported to a nearby ranch at some point or on the island itself like some kind of bovine Robinson Crusoe. And I sort of love the the natural law assumption that if you have that if you a livestock animal can successfully escape from and main, it can assess from uh, you know from the slaughterhouse and maintain freedom for a period of time that you've earned your life it has a wonderful kind of medieval feel about it and and I, I reached that part of the story when I was reading about it and I and I thought well you know there was some local official saying well he's earned his life and I thought yeah that's that's only fair uh, or she's earned her life as in this case female cow uh, well you know this 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 cow has earned her life I was like well that's that's only fair. That also, that response is totally irrational because if you follow through with it, it suggests that all the it's all the other cows' fault for getting butchered. If they wanted to survive, they too should have escaped, but they clearly didn't. So you know, fuck them. You know, hamburgers for all. But I but I do maintain that this cow should be left alone because in this cow we can see a defiance that we can all admire. Uh, to slaughter it would be to slaughter the part of ourselves that that we devoutly hope would meet the reaper's eye and say, not today. Uh, and that kind of resolve deserves a salt lick. So friends, uh, you know, armed with a gift salt lick, we take ship now for Poland. Take care, everybody. <laughs>